0: This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the Bowtie Bandit of Blood, a transfusion (laughs) medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Today, we're rounding with Dr. Rondell Graham, Associate Professor of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology here at Mayo Clinic, and we're going to be talking about the value and challenges of frozen sections. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Graham.
1: My pleasure, Justin. It's always great to hear from you and always great to be a part of the podcast.
0: We're after May the 4th, but uh, (laughs) you have an intimidating background, I see. (laughs) You know,
1: I really enjoy May the 4th, and I just think what Star Wars contributed to our collective imagination is just amazing. (laughs) I, I always enjoy that franchise, and it's been so fun.
0: Uh, Excellent. Well, hey, let's get started here talking about frozen sections. This is an interesting aspect of practice. So can you kind of kick us off with what are frozen sections and why are they important part of patient care?
1: So frozen sections are a pathology, a specimen type wherein we are taking biopsies or or portions of tissue from a patient intraoperatively to guide the surgeon. Through the surgical procedure. They're really important because sometimes the surgeon needs to ensure that he or she gets completely around the concerning lesion, maybe the cancer, and so we help them to make sure that they have been able to completely excise the tumor or the mass. We also sometimes help them when they come upon something incidentally to help them to understand what this is and what may be the next best steps for them to take during the procedure. And sometimes we're helping them to determine. Well, no, you are approaching tissue that is viable. So we help them to assess the margins of things that may not be tumors, but to help them to assess the viability of the tissue surrounding it. We are also performing a role wherein we we're helping to determine the adequacy of a sample for the other downstream testing that may be molecular testing, maybe the development of vaccines that may be directed against a tumor. And so it's a really valuable tool to guide the surgeon in terms of adequate of resection, adequacy of specimen for downstream testing, and sometimes to help them know what is this? What kind of situation are you dealing with? And so it's a really valuable part of patient care in those respects.
0: Wow. Okay. So interestingly enough for our listeners, this was actually for me when I was a third year medical student rotating on surgery actually was my first exposure to a pathologist and it was through this frozen section process. And and yeah, I thought it was so fascinating to understand that pathologists was helping to make sure that we took enough, we got the cancer out. In my particular case, I was on surgical oncology, but that we didn't take too much. And so it really was guiding the surgeon's hand, as you said. And then I think your other point that I wanted to underline and highlight for everybody, this idea of when it really has the potential of changing what the remainder of the surgery looks like, or you brought up at the end, the idea of an inadequate specimen. So in other words, I suppose that if something wasn't enough tissue to get a diagnosis, somebody would have to go back to the operating room. Is that right?
1: That's absolutely correct. And so it allows for the safest approach for patients so that they're undergoing anesthesia for as much as is necessary and no more. So it really reduces the risk of patients going through multiple procedures by trying to make the most of that anesthesia time.
0: Wow. So I have to tell you, uh, one of the things I've heard about pathologists is you know, that we get to practice sane medicine, or in other words, you know, we're struggling with a challenging case. We have the time to pull the book down and get a coffee and reflect on things. <laughs> it seems like the frozen section is a little different ball of wax. And so I'm curious for our listeners, if you could kind of explain what are some of the challenges of actually performing a frozen section diagnosis? <laughs>
1: As you point out in the question, frozen section is really done on the time constraint. And so we want to be able to support the interoperative procedure, but we have to do it in a timeline that is safe for the patients and facilitates the surgical care. And so there is this time constraint to the interpretation, which adds a layer of challenge. Because the tissue is frozen, that introduces artifacts because of all those ice crystals that are going to be a part of the tissue as they make those sections for us to look at the slides. So there is the time constraint, the artifact of actually doing the frozen section. And sometimes the samples are really small and they need to be small as the surgeon is trying to determine the next steps. There's almost this compounding effect of tree variables. And so, yeah, pathologists have to respond to that challenge. I would say that we're very enthusiastic about it. If you think about this kind of in the broad perspective of the history of surgical care, frozen section is a real durable contribution that was actually popularized here at Mayo Clinic. So as you know, frozen section was one of the major needs, uh, the ability to provide surgeons with answers intraoperatively in the time that the Mayo Brothers were practicing. And they hired a pathologist from the Twin Cities, Louis B. Wilson, and he described the first method that was well popularized and well accepted. It wasn't actually the first method that was done, but it was the first one that was widely accepted and considered to be accurate. And so Mayo is largely considered to be the spiritual home of frozen section, if you will. (laughs)
0: <laughs> wow, I could hear the pride coming through <laughs> in your voice. Since you moved on, it kind of gave us a, a glimpse into the history of it. I, I want to skip to one of my questions that I kind of was saving for later. Could you maybe give us a flavor for how is Frozen Section changed over the course of practice has it really been practiced very similarly over the years and are there differences in frozen section practice in different hospitals
1: i would say that our and let's take it that hopefully section has changed over time in our hospitals here at Mayo clinic in rochester and how it has changed over time kind of broadly i will say in our hospital here in rochester i think we're probably doing just as much frozen section in a very similar environment the reason for that stability is because we have great team work with the surgeons, with our lab technical staff, and with the nursing staff. So we have a real open floor plan, amazing communication and prioritization of cases. And so we can manage a very high throughput with that particular model using a unique form of cryostat that allows us to have a throughput that's of the order of seconds or a few minutes. Whereas in the traditional model that we practice elsewhere, the throughput is a little bit slower, but that might fit the needs of those practices. How things have changed though, is I think we're seeing many more patients who are receiving neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And so I think small samples and possicellular samples have increased in frequency. We now have patients receiving intraoperative radiation, which provides a radiation challenge the interpretation of radiation-induced atypia and extensive fibrosis and so on, more complex resections that are associated with that. I think so those are things we're seeing. We're seeing a greater complexity of resections, more posicellular or hypocellular kind of specimens with, you know, maybe perhaps more radiation type atypia and so on. That's probably what we're seeing internally. And I think that's probably what's happening globally as well. Another thing that's probably happening globally and is definitely happening internally is the receipt of specimens with a view to perform downstream molecular testing, development of vaccines, and other kind of novel therapies. And so we're now performing frozen sections to determine that we have an adequate specimen to submit for those other forms of testing. And those are things from flow cytometry, which is pretty well characterized and widely used, to things as complicated as developing tumor vaccines. And so that's something we're seeing in frozen sexual practice here. I'm sure we're seeing that elsewhere as well.
0: Your answer really ties into two themes that I think we've carried through several of our podcasts here, and we're always talking about connecting pathology and lab medicine to the clinical practice, and you're bringing up the collaboration that you have with the various surgical practices and how that's been a very critical point is what I'm hearing from your answer. And then the other aspect is that it's really practice dependent is another thing that has been brought up. And I know that Dr. Sandrack in one of our previous podcasts was kind of talking about quality improvement projects and how it's not just replicate what worked someplace else. So, you know, I think that highlights that there are reasons for the practice being set up in certain ways in certain places. And I think that's wonderful. That really, I think, tips to the expertise of the local pathologist.
1: Absolutely, Justin. I think that's a really insightful comment from Dr. Sandrak and yourself. I think it's really important to be relevant to the context and to understand the needs there. There are some models that work well because the particular practice or question is a high volume one. There are some where the, the setting is more of a low volume setting. And so you just have to adapt. And I would agree completely that it shows the relevance and the importance of good communication with the surgical colleagues and, and, and other colleagues we will be working with. And I think pathologists are really well suited to that role, not specifically on the topic of frozen section, but the principle applies when it comes to setting up algorithms and work streams. How are we going to manage a patient with colon cancer? Pathologists play an integral role there for the clinical team to understand how will the diagnosis be made? How will it be reported? The timeline for those things? How are we going to execute our strategy on ancillary testing? How are we going to work with molecular to get the right test done at the right time and get those results back? And pathologists, because of our work, Uh, And and by pathologists, I mean, laboratorians in general, because of our our work across these different domains, microscopy, and other lab-related skills, really perform a really great role in helping clinicians to understand these things and helping us to make good decisions.
0: I love that. And I think just to take a second and celebrate our role in clinical practice, right, is this role of bringing together all these aspects of practice, this sort of workflow process, right? Because there are some aspects of our practice that are very individualized, looking at a specific patient's biopsy or sending out a particular patient's workup. But there's also typically a lot of workflow process, a lot of big picture processes that we do. It fights against, I think that sort of, I don't know if the right word to use is (laughs) trope, but that idea that the person who doesn't have people skills will send them to the pathologist, right? (laughs) Pathologists, uh, you know, are very dependent on our people and interpersonal skills. And that's something that we here certainly interview quite heavily when we're looking at applicants, both for our training programs, as well as faculty.
1: Fully agree, Justin. I would say people's skills matter a lot, and and most of the work that we're able to do is related to our relationships, good quality relationships and a good uh, productive skill in working with people, providing motivation and support, and understanding how people work well and what works well for people. I would also say, too, that all of the excellent pathologists I know are very interested in excellent patient outcomes. And a lot of that has to do with communication around multidisciplinary teams to understand what testing at the right time. For more laboratory education, including a listing of live conferences, webinars, and on-demand content, visit news.mayocliniclabs.com forward slash education.
0: I just want to tie a couple of your previous answers together and dive down with a deeper question of, you've talked about the challenges of performing a frozen section. You know, you've got your time, you've got a lot of artifact, you've talked about the increasing complexity of cases. And I'm curious from a medical education standpoint, right, training the next generation of surgical pathologists. We have pathology residents here. We also have a surgical pathology fellowship. And so I imagine as you are faculty and signing out these cases, one aspect of your job is mentoring these people in these sort of high pressure environments so that, you know, at the end of their training, they've really cultivated this self-confidence of I may not always understand what I'm looking at, but I have confidence that I can figure it out. And I'm kind of curious about, given this uptick in complexity of cases and just what it is at baseline, how do you mentor people that are trying to kind of find their way? And I mean, I'm really kind of targeting for the students, uh, the trainees that are listening to this podcast right now.
1: I think you're right about the complexity in the environment and how do we mentor people to engage with the complexity and to kind of make decisions for their life. I think a really important part of this is having a learning attitude. A learning attitude is really crucial. We're in a field that's constantly evolving, like all other fields in medicine, and being able to assimilate new information, incorporate that information into new practices is going to be really important. When I reflect on my own time as a trainee and what we were doing then in terms of the workup for cases, we were doing less molecular testing, I would say, 12 years ago than we're doing now. I would say that the importance of tumor immunology has only been amplified or the recognition of that importance has been amplified. And so we've had to adapt to more, you know, to pd one immunistic chemistry, a resurgence and an understanding of the value of mismatch repair. And so I think a a learning orientation to be able to adapt to these changes is really crucial. And so we have more complex cases and the reports have changed as a consequence. And so we need to adapt to provide clinicians what they need I remember when I first started, we were providing lots of prose style reports, which were beautiful and had like really fantastic language. But as we all are being compressed with increasing amounts of information, there was a growing desire for synoptic reports that were much shorter, much brevity. And so they don't have the English that kind of rolls off the tongue, but uh, they provide really valuable information in a short period of time, and we've had to adapt to that. So I think a learning orientation is really crucial. I talk a lot about that to trainees, and I think many of the faculty here do too. I think another thing that's become increasingly clear is the value of teamwork. One of the benefits of working here at Mayo is that we have a lot of long-standing colleagues and some colleagues who are emeritus faculty who have been here for a long time. For example, Dr. Aidan Carney, who's very famous for uh, recognizing tree syndromes, I think eight tumors and many other things. And talking with Aiden has always been a real great gift because he would share in his time where there was so much emphasis on the individual skill, in terms of developing one's career. He kind of comments on how transitioning from that period, which is several decades ago to now, where things are so heavily team based. And it's really, really crucial to have depth in your understanding and in your skill set but to also recognize that you need to pair that with the skills of others to come up with these really complex answers that we need for today's uh, uh situations so an example of that will be historically as a pathologist you would kind of like use your microscopy skill to understand the morphologic features of a lesion and recognize that there are different types of lesions. But I think now we're pairing that with tumor immunology. We're pairing that with molecular diagnostics to get a different kind of picture of what these lesions or what these tumors are. I think you're seeing this now in a, in a field close to you where we're using cells as therapies. And so I'm sure you're seeing like this kind of a transformation happening in your area too, in the blood bank and the transfusion medicine services. I think the, the importance of the, the teamwork has really been amplified. And I think those are the things that we're sharing now. I think trainees are really receptive to that.
0: I love this conversation. I just want to go one step further and, and ask you about your own practice of getting better. And you were talking about it's important for for people to have a learning orientation. And one of the things that I notice is there's a lot of importance, I think, in the role of feedback in the process of learning, especially as you're talking about this whole teamwork Yep. concept. And so I was kind of curious if you could kind of share for our listeners how do you as a practicing pathologist where do you solicit your feedback from and and maybe an example of how you've kind of used that feedback to get better because I think for many of us feedback is kind of that the struggle thing to take in.
1: I heard a guy say this once and I think it's true. Without feedback, it's almost impossible to improve, and so I think feedback is really important. I think feedback can be challenging. There's a Harvard Business Review article all on feedback um, that I would commend to listeners to just look at Harvard Business Review on feedback. There's actually an entire series of small booklet on that. In terms of feedback, I really cherish it, and to get good feedback is more challenging as an uh, attendant or as a faculty person than as a trainee, because trainees in general are more reluctant to give faculty feedback, and your colleagues, many of whom are become your friends, are more reluctant to give you feedback i get feedback from a number of different sources one i really solicit feedback from the people who are supervising me my direct supervisors and one of the things that i think is really helpful is to ask them how can i improve on this in the future i think this is a really important question to volunteer and to kind of open the door for people to ask many times people will try to sidestep that question especially if they're not expecting it and so One of the things to do is when they give you that initial response, like, oh, I think everything is going great, that's a typical thing you'll hear in Minnesota, then you say, I really appreciate that. And what do you think we would need to do in the next year for things to continue to be great? And then sometimes you'll begin to gain some insight there. Another source that I solicit feedback from are from my mentors. I have uh, mentors in, in various places. And I think it's important for trainees to appreciate that it's unlikely that you'll have one mentor for your whole career that will meet all of your mentorship needs. You're much more likely to have a board of governors or a board of trustees, or a board of directors, as it were. And so one of the things that I do, I ask my mentors for, for feedback on things. So I'm working through a series of book chapters, 14 book chapters, and I've done 13, and I have one more to go. And I ask him one of my mentors, like, what do you think about this? How do you think I could improve? And um, and this particular mentor is really excellent at it. She's an amazing writer. And so she's really giving me feedback on how I can improve my writing. And It's been amazing. And um, part of maturing that process, or making this more beneficial is to actually ask for some advice or feedback and then act on it and then kind of go back and i see over time you see how that's developing and and this particular mentor what i've done is like so you, you know i've communicated with her like i really appreciate your approach to writing how how lucid your communication is and and i'm working on some of these projects would these be of interest to you intellectually and so there i'm pairing the work that i'm doing with her skill set and so there's kind of this mutual benefit and i would say a lot of good mentorship relationships have that bi-directional dynamic so i am seeking out feedback there we have some excellent trainees here who do the same thing with me they say well you know dr graham we've worked on these three publications have i improved from publication one to number three um and i think that's a great that's a great strategy the third source I'll give, because I know you want to follow up, is I do solicit feedback from my own family and from my loved ones and friends. And so one of the things I do is sometimes ask them questions about myself and say, how do I appear and how do I come over? And I even do this sometimes with my friends whenever we're in meetings. So we recently had a meeting with a visiting professor who came and gave an excellent presentation. And she actually asked for some questions as part of a sit down component of her visit her virtual visit and so I after that I actually asked three people who were in a meeting how did my questions come over I asked what I thought were a couple of hard questions um, and so I wanted to be respectful about them and, and to be you know but also to make sure that we were getting to some of the deeper issues and I got really good feedback that the, the questions were good but I think one of the important things here is, is is useful not to just trust your intuition but to triangulate on the truth by getting feedback
0: That was brilliant. And no, I really appreciate you taking us down and helping me explore this area of kind of how do we get better? What is this learning orientation? Then finally, we got into feedback. You've given us a lot of rich, specific examples on where we can look for feedback. And I really appreciate your insight of friends and family. But also, I love uh, how you've showed us how to go about that, about being specific with people and asking them for that feedback. I want to kind of come back to revisiting frozen section and, and kind of, to be respectful of your time, want to kind of hit into this last question of kind of looking at the future in pathology and certainly surgical pathology as well. There's, there's so much interest in uh, artificial intelligence and, Mm -hmm. and informatics. I do not sign out frozen sections, but I'm kind of curious, is that thought to play a role in the future of the frozen section practice?
1: So I have seen some commentaries on it suggesting that, in essence, it will have a role. And I think that is true from our own practice. I do practice in the frozen section group here, where we, we have a really robust practice uh, volume-wise and complexity-wise. I think there, there are many ways in which these advanced digital tools, if I could put them all in that bre- uh, bucket for now, can really help us. I think one is with our workflows. And I think that's a pretty low hanging fruit where we can map out the value stream. There are lots of manual steps that need to happen in terms of getting that tissue into the right cassette. And then from that cassette, being able to generate slides. There's a lot of manual steps there, even in the computer environment as it were. And it would be really helpful if we could take information from the EHR or from that initial frozen section report and have AI tools or digital tools be able to determine, well, they're thinking about infection. These are a suite of tests that may be useful. They're thinking about Hirschsprung's disease. This is what we need to perform. I think those things can be automated by pulling that information from the EHR, from the pathology report to provide some suggestions or some decision support as we kind of like move through the cascade of bringing those permanent slides and those final diagnoses out. I think it can help us too with formatting the reports. Let's use an example of a cancer patient, a patient who has lung cancer that's been resected. It can help us with pre-populating that synoptic with some of the relevant information or some of the things that we think that we need once we recognize that there's a patient with lung cancer. I think the potential is there for those types of workflow type things. Those are the things that sometimes don't get people's pulse racing, like workflow. They think, oh my goodness, workflow and supply chain? I never want to hear about those. But those are so crucial to being able to deliver products. I think there's a lot of interest in heat maps guiding our eyes to identify small metastases. There's some really compelling data out there that this is something that can be done, micrometastases, can be readily identified and margin assessment. So there's some compelling data that this is possible. I think people will continue to be in the loop because I think the the technology is perhaps a little bit faster than the regulatory environment. And so I think the regulatory environment will need to be in place before we see a robot or a machine issuing an interpretation on its own. I think it will provide insights and the pathologist will ultimately incorporate that kind of in a clinical way. So that's the way I kind of see things happening kind of near term. I think it's gonna be super exciting and it will allow us to be even more efficient.
0: That's brilliant. So we're looking into the future here uh, and rounding with Dr. Rondell Graham on the value and challenges of frozen sections. Thank you so much, Dr. Graham, for taking the time to discuss this with us.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, Justin. I really love being here.
0: To all of our listeners, thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation.mayo.edu. If you have enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please uh, follow or hit subscribe. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations.